Turn with me to uh, Hebrews 9. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand. Hebrews 9, starting with verse 1. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 5. And then we'll work our way through uh, 6 through 15 with uh, two other sections. Starting with verse 1, Hebrews chapter 9. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Even there the writer says, can't tell you in really deep detail, well let me move on, but let's stop there. <laughs> Father, we ask again for your goodness and your grace upon this time in your word. Lord, give me your words. Lord, remove me once again from the equation that we might hear from you, Jesus. Prepare all of our hearts to be listening, but not just listeners of your word, but ready to apply and be doers of your word. Lord, whatever is complicated, simplify it. Whatever, Lord, we need to understand for immediate application, show us, Lord, that which we need a little later. Lord, continue to reveal these things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the author of Hebrews continues his doctrinal dissertation on the necessity of Jesus coming and implementing a new covenant and priestly service on behalf of all who will believe on him for salvation. This is a dissertation. This is some depth that was never written in some of the other New Testament epistles, uh, the, kind of the rival to Hebrews as far as doctrinal depth is Romans. Romans and Hebrews together, you can kind of study them together. Paul goes deep in Romans, Hebrews goes deep, but they, some things overlap. We were, this week we were five days in Romans 5, but there's some overlapping, but there's some things that are really only described in some of the detail in the book of Hebrews and vice versa. There's things like the grafting of Israel is only described in the way that it is in the book of Romans. But, so they're very complementary books, Romans and Hebrews, very complementary to understand what God did in the old and how it's revealed in the new. And as the author has been doing throughout, he goes back in time to explain what God was doing in ancient times and how it related to the coming of Christ and the new covenant. That we both needed, and we needed this new covenant, and we're now under this new covenant by the grace of God and by the ministry of Jesus Christ. We needed the new covenant, and we're now, in fact, under it all through him. He's the one that brought about this new covenant. Now, if I was the author, you know, or if, or if you were, if any of us were living in the first century, and the Holy Spirit comes to us and says, I've picked you to write this epistle. Uh, my good friend Sam believes Luke wrote it. Many people believe Paul wrote it. Uh, other people think Apollos wrote it. There's different schools of thought on who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's not that super important. When we get to heaven, we'll find out if we, any of us were right or 
a couple of us were right or all of us were wrong. But uh, nevertheless, whoever God came to, if I was the author, if he had come to me, by the end of chapter 8, if you're with us uh, for chapter 8 or chapter 7 or chapter 6, but by the end of chapter 8, I'd have probably looked up to the Lord and said, that should just about do it, right? That's what I might have said. A lot of detail already, Lord. That should just about cover it. Think about it. Chapter 4, chapter 4 covered the sinless nature of Christ as our high priest. Chapter 5, the sin and weakness of the Levitical priest. Still in chapter 5, the suffering of Christ as the Son of God and his authorship of salvation. Same chapter, the introduction of Christ as being of the order of Melchizedek, still in chapter 5. End of chapter 5. Beginning of chapter 6, we have, end of 5 and beginning of 6, we have an intermission where the writer admonishes the immaturity of some of the church, their unwillingness or disinterest in learning deeper truths, as well as a sobering warning not to become sluggish and compromising in the faith, even that some may have been lost. All of this is in the intermission there, chapter 5 and chapter 6. Then closing chapter 6, an encouragement to the faithful. An encouragement to the faithful and back to the infallible prom, uh, promises and purpose of Christ and the trustworthiness of God's own oath and witness. All that's at the end of chapter 6. Then on to chapter 7. And a deep dive on Melchizedek. Wouldn't you agree? He had a deep dive on Melchizedek his superiority, his authority, even over Abraham. His role as both priest and king long before the law and priesthood had ever been given. Same chapter, still in chapter 7, as we're climbing these stairs if you look at, uh, up on the screen, the need for a new and everlasting priesthood fulfilled in Christ. And in verses 25 through 28 of chapter 7. I don't have time to read them, but if you can go back and read verses 25 through 28 chapter 7, we saw 12 characteristics or titles of Christ and his holy and incomparable nature. End of chapter 7. Finally, last week in chapter 8, we saw Christ sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, as both king and priest, as the mediator of this new covenant, based on himself. The covenant is based on himself. And the mercy of God the Father. So I might have thought at the end of chapter 8, if I was receiving all this from the Lord, I would have said, surely that's got to be enough. Nobody could digest that any more than that. When I was in the business world, when we had, when we had a long day of meetings, we called it drinking from a fire hose, Right? Because it's coming at you fast, and most of it's like blasting right on by you. And that kind of feels that way with these chapters, because it's a lot. And the writer keeps getting more from the Lord, and he's like, I would have thought, that's got to be enough. They can't handle more than the Lord. That's what I might have thought. But the Holy Spirit says, nope. And I find it fascinating that the Holy Spirit insisted that the writer continue on in this revelation, in this explanation, in these additional layers. The Holy Spirit says, nope, there's more that needs to be written. 
There's more that needs to be said. God never says more that he needs to say or less than he needs to say, unlike us. I saw a quote recently. Uh, I can't remember the guy who said it. it was in the, he's uh, alive in the 50s. He, he said, I've got nothing to say, and I'm saying it. <laughs> this is basically Twitter today, right? I've got nothing to say, and I'm saying it. God is the opposite. He has a lot to say, but he says exactly what needs to be said. There's no wasted word. He doesn't say too much. He doesn't say too little. Exactly what needs to be said. And the Holy Spirit says, continue to write. Stay engaged. Stay engaged for the writer. Stay engaged for the reader. Stay engaged for us, the New Testament church that's reading it. Stay engaged and continue to learn. And we don't learn just to know stuff. We learn to apply things to fall more in love with Jesus. That's the whole goal of the Holy Spirit here. By the way, great parents, great teachers, great coaches, great leaders always take you farther than you want to go. Do you agree with that? Great parents, great teachers, great leaders, great coaches always take you farther than you want to go or wanted to go or thought you could go. And they teach you more than you thought you could learn, more than you thought you could retain. And if they've done the job that can be done, you'll retain it and refer back to it years later because those elements will stay with you. And then really good teachers continue to add other concepts and depth on top of foundational concepts. And you add on top of those. And then we have Jesus. One of his titles was rabbi or teacher. There's never been a better teacher in the history of the world or all of time. And he is, in this text, both the subject and the author. He's the subject and the author by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of Christ. And he's essentially saying, nope, chapter 8, chapter 7, chapter 6, chapter 5, we're not done yet. We're not done, and if we're not done in the text, we're not done in the study here. And when you reach the top step, here's what I think the Lord is saying. Because you don't know when you've learned enough. According, God says, I'll tell you when you know what you need to know. Um, when you've reached the top step, you'll have a totally different perspective. You ever seen that? You, you're kind of like someone's dragging you up to the top. Like, oh, you've got to see the view from here. And you have in your mind, all right, it's going to be okay. I remember the first time I went to the Grand Canyon. I'd seen pictures of it, and you kind of get up there, and then I, when you kind of come finally to the rim, and you look out, it literally is breathtaking. And you're like, now I know why people will drive all the way across the country and do it. There's certain vantage points. Once you get there, God says, now you can see what I've been trying to show you. And that's what I believe he's doing with our study here. He wants to take us to a different vantage point. We'll have a different perspective. We'll have a vista, if you will. If you're taking notes this morning, again, our time in the Word, from symbolic to eternal, the priestly transition to Christ, from symbolic to eternal. There is a lot of symbolism in the Bible, and it always points to what's real. The symbolism only makes sense if it's pointing to something real, right? You know, so the symbolic nature is pointing not only to the real here, but the eternal, the eternally real. And right here in verse 1, draw your attention back, that indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Right here in verse 1, we have this picture of the divine. It says, 
the divine services. What's the divine? Well, the divine would be perfection coming down out of heaven. Holy. Jesus was divine. He comes down out of heaven. That's what we call in the Christmas Eve the incarnation coming up. Coming down to the earthly. It mentions here the earthly sanctuary. What would be earthly? Well, earthly is the imperfection. It's the fallen world. We live in the imperfect. God is in the divine. We're in the earthly. But God's sending the divine down to the earthly here. In other words, everything about the tabernacle, the temple. Remember, the tabernacle came first. Remember, it was animal skins. and It was, it was uh, portable. They could actually fold it up roll it up, and move it to the next place in their, in their journey. In the, fort. the temple was not portable. It was built of massive monolithic stones. So once the temple was built, that's where it would re- remain. But everything about the tabernacle and the temple and the priestly construct was designed by God to represent the divine here on the earth. Everything... Everything in the spiritual realm was designed by God, everything in the physical realm. Only God decided how there would be a male and a female, that there would be different skin colors, that there would be, you know, X and out of bones in the body, and I forgot that from biology class. I used to know it. But anyway, all that kind of stuff. But then the important things here about things like the tabernacle or the temple, all of this was given by God. God gave Moses on the Mount of Sinai, he gave him the design, and the guidelines of the priestly sanctuary and the ministry of the priesthood. To essentially, if you kind of now look at the scriptures from Genesis all the way to the New Testament, um, the New Covenant, by the way, Testament is a witness, the new witness, or you have the old witness and the new witness. They both are together one witness in the sense of all the Bible is two loaves of the same bread loaf there, but Uh, But when you have what God gave to Moses, Moses was essentially receiving from God what are stepping stones of the coming Messiah and the coming high priest. Does that make sense? In other words, they were were visual representations, real, live, kind of like, you know, um, you you give the kids when they're really little, the little scratch and sniff book. They get an understanding long before they see an apple. They can, they can scratch one, smell one. God, it's kind of like the Old Testament is that. And then you get the real thing when Jesus comes. Maybe a poor analogy, but just work with it. But let's start this progression. Let's start this progression with what I've titled the articles, which are found in verse 1 through 5, which we just read about. Uh, these articles... Um, the layout here, so he says for the tabernacle, the first part, verse 2, there was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, <clears throat> verse 3, behind the second veil. <clears throat> the layout starting in verse 2 goes all the way back to the original tabernacle instructions that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and then they were created by spirit-filled artisans. And many theologians even wonder if some of all of that was just supernatural as well because it's really hard to understand how they did all this in the wilderness, where they got all the materials. I mean, I know they had the gold that was given to them from the Egyptians, but still, uh, the molding, uh, when you understand how much technology is taken to make molds and where, where would you even do the smelting and all this kind of stuff. But nevertheless, they, 
when the Spirit's involved, anything is possible. And we know that in Exodus chapter 28 and in other places subsequent, it said that they were Spirit-anointed artisans. Well, the Holy Spirit has no limitations. So if he wants to make a burning bush or anything else, he does. But each article was part of the first covenant, but it had a deeper meaning that would be revealed in Christ and in his priesthood and in the new covenant. And let's look first at the lampstand, and we'll have this kind of structure of the tabernacle up on the screen for just a sec. Well, actually, next several minutes. I'll leave it up there because uh, all of this kind of takes us through. We're not focused on the outer court there. We're looking at the holy place. Uh, We don't have, not only did the writer not have time to cover it all in detail, we don't have time to cover it all in detail. Uh, So the outer court we're not even addressing, nor does he. Uh, But the lampstand, let's look at that first. The lampstand was a seven-branch menorah. We actually have one over in the sound booth, way over there. You see the center the center vine or, or the, the core branch, and then the three come off the sides. So you have the seven-branch menorah that is not the same as the Hanukkah menorah, which will be coming, you'll see, in, um, uh, in December. Uh, but this is the seven-branch menorah with three branches on either side. Seven, of course is the number of completion in Scripture. You know, on the seventh day, God said, it is good, and he rested on the seventh day. Seven is the number of uh, completion. Uh, You also have in the menorah, you have a seven and one, a seven seven individually, but one collective. And you have a seven and one um, image there, much like a rainbow. It's one rainbow, but it's seven colors, right? You have the seven colors of the rainbow. You have the seven days of a week. There are seven in one. Each of these things make a whole. But it was made of pure gold, and it was adorned with almond blossoms. So that might be a hint to you that almond milk is okay after all. You know, so uh, <laughs> almond blossoms. Of all the things, uh, that's what it was. Almond blossoms. So the, the, the flowers that were put on made out of pure gold were almond blossoms. It had seven lamps, and you can see it on the menorah. The seven lamps are the, are the little cup part where the actual olive oil would be in, and had seven lamps above the branches. They burned with pure olive oil. Long before the Star of David, you know, today you see the Israeli flag and it has the Star of David on it, uh, but the ancient symbol of Israel was always the menorah. As, as the more archaeology that is uncovered, the more they find the menorah, the menorah. The menorah was clearly the symbol of Israel, not only among Israel, but to the nations when they would visit. I'm sure when, you know, Queen of Sheba comes from uh, Africa up to it, the menorah was the symbol, the menorah. Israel was to be God's representative of his light and his truth to the nations. It's interesting. There's seven continents. You know, there's seven days in the week. I mean, but it was the menorah, it was the light. Israel was called to be a light in a dark world. Then you had the table of showbread. We don't, we don't have time to spend a long time on each of these, but I want to give you a little synopsis of each one so you understand a little bit more uh, what they meant in their origination and how they could be fulfilled in Jesus. The table of showbread. Now, the table of showbread, you see it on... Now they've got... Okay. I see it. Now I can see it, too. Uh, it is right there. So you got the table of showbread. And the table of showbread had 12 loaves of bread on plates of pure gold. Uh, they were sprinkled with frankincense. 
frankincense is edible. Those of you that are you essential oil uh, you know, champions around here, you already knew that. But uh, frankincense is edible. The 12 loaves were sprinkled with frankincense. That might, that might kind of be a clue to you on some things right there. Uh, symbolized the covenant with the 12 tribes. The 12 loaves symbolized the covenant with the 12 tribes of Israel. They could only be eaten by the priest. Only be eaten by the priest on the Sabbath. And it was also refreshed on the Sabbath. So new loaves were put out on the Sabbath, and they would stay fresh for the whole coming week. Um, you know, God would say once a week they were refreshed. The writer then moves beyond the veil uh, into the Holy of Holies, and he first mentions the golden censer. Now, you won't see the golden censer up on the screen. Uh, for whatever reason, the writer here kind of um, just takes, instead of addressing uh, the altar of incense, the instead addresses the article that goes into the Holy of Holies because the altar of incense stayed there just outside the veil. But live coals and incense were taken from the altar of incense, put into a censer that the high priest would take beyond the veil. So in other words, the incense, he's focused more on the incense here than he is the actual altar because the incense comes off the altar into the censer and behind the veil, the priest would bring the incense in behind the veil. So the golden censer, um, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and then the cloud of the incense would, would then envelop the Holy of Holies, and this sweet-smelling uh, incense would go up over the mercy seat as he is kind of bringing the in, uh, incense into the censer, with the censer holding these coal or these live coals and incense. Um, which was part of the next article because, again, the smoke would go up over the Ark of the Covenant, right? It would just kind of rise up uh, right there in the center of the room. And the next part that he mentions is the Ark of the Covenant, which is overlaid with pure gold. And it sat at the center, direct center of the Holy of Holies. Inside the, uh, the Ark was the golden pot of perpetually fresh manna. There was a pot of always fresh manna inside. You also had Aaron's rod. Interestingly, Aaron's rod uh, had one time become a serpent. Do you remember that? Before it did any of this blooming stuff, it had become a serpent, and it ate Pharaoh's serpents. Same rod. Um, I don't have time to get in there. There's some typology there as well. But anyway, that it, it had become a serpent. You, you may remember that. Um, so this dead piece of wood then budded out of, overnight, fresh blossoms and fresh, fully ripe uh, um, almonds. Dead piece of wood. Take any piece of wood, just... I have, I have one that I run with in case I run into dogs that I don't like and don't like me. And so, um, and, you know, it, it would be like that. It's about that yay long. My wife can say, yep, he carries it every time he runs it. It's just about this long. It's never butted a single thing. It's got, it's dead as a doornail. But it's hard as a rock. But it would be amazing to see it all of a sudden bloom, right? Because it's not in the ground. It's not getting any sunlight or soil or anything else. But you have that taking place. And the rod being Aaron's, um, it, the rod pointed to, the reason why it was in the ark, the rod pointed to Aaron's special role 
and God giving the priesthood to the, the line of Levi. That's why it was in there. It was actually pointing to the Levitical um, purpose of the priesthood and the fact that it, only Aaron and his descendants could be in the Holy of Holies as priest, except for Jesus. That, that, that's a, remember, we've been telling there's there's something overriding this, the order of Melchizedek. But anyway, uh, that's, again, what the, uh, all of Israel would have understood. Aaron's rod is in there because the rod shows the order of the Levitical priesthood. Then there were the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments given uh, by uh, God to Israel through Moses. Um, the tablets were written on stone. Now we hear a tablet, we think of an iPad or something like that. But uh, uh, the tablets were written in stone, but they were unlike any document in the history of the world, and there'll never be another document like these tablets. Why? Because these tablets were written by the very finger of God. The very finger of God. Um, the only document ever given on earth written by the, fair, the very finger of God. It kind of makes it really a bad idea and really a foolish thing to mock them, doesn't it? When you realize that people are mocking the only document God ever wrote with his very finger, and Americans there are mocking that document. Unbelievable, isn't it? Someday, every person will stand before us and say, the very thing I wrote, you mocked, and I wrote it with my own finger. Lastly, above the Ark of the Covenant, fastened to the covering was the mercy seat, and the, eight, the cherubim's wings touched on you know, the tips of the wings, covered over the mercy seat, overshadowing this, overshadowing this most holy place within the Holy of Holies. And just like the writer, I wish we could go into even greater detail, but time doesn't allow it. But So you have, a, you have the setting of the sanctuary here. Let's look at the next uh, verses, and let's look at how the servants were raised up to serve within them, starting in verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the uh, tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part, the priest went alone, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in arrogance. And, not arrogance, well, arrogance too, but ignorance. Um, in ignorance. And the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest, holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic. For the present time. There we actually have, if everyone's, and everyone says, I'm not sure it really was symbolic. Well, I can tell you that it was. Because it says it right here. It was symbolic for the present time in which both the gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. So let's take a look at the, what I've titled the offerings here. Uh, we see that in this holy setting, the priest first uh, offered themselves as vessels of uh, service. The first offering is themselves. They had to wash themselves clean. They had to present themselves, not, not to be sacrificed, but as vessels of service. That makes sense? They first offer themselves. When you come here this morning, you're saying, Lord, I'm a vessel for your service. I'm presenting myself 
to be used by you. So the first thing is they have to offer themselves. It was their life. It was their calling as the Levites. Remember the, the, the whole budded rod there meant that they were called to this service. And they had to present themselves. They had to be willing servants. It was their life not to build things. You know, the, the tribe of Levi, they didn't, they didn't get houses or cities that, that, that were really their own. I mean, they had places to live, but I mean, they didn't have the land like the other tribes. They gave their lives not to build things, not to create things. They were not ever, you know, the, the Levites weren't to be coming up with better banking strategies, coming up with marketing, all that stuff. Their role was to give their lives as service to the Lord. Not to create things, but to serve the creator. Not to build things, but to serve the builder whose maker in the heavens has built and created all things. They had the daily services. They had the weekly or Sabbath day services. They had the special services related to the feast and the high holy days such as Passover. And one of these holy days is mentioned here, uh, but into the, into the part of the... Uh, Second part, the priest went alone, the high priest went alone once a year and not without blood, which was offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. One of these holy days is the Day of Atonement, also called Yom Kippur. It was the most solemn day in Israel, the most solemn day of all the feasts, the most solemn day, and still is to this day considered the holiest day in Judaism. Even non-practicing Jewish people that you know, they, they will know generally that that is the holiest day. It was a day of fasting. It was a day of prayer. It was a day of reflection on, Lord, get rid of all the junk in me and all the sin. It was just a very solemn day. It was the only time of the year that anyone could enter the Holy of Holies, and not just anyone, only the high priest, as it says right here, and of course that's under the law, only the high priest was authorized for this sobering task. Even the high priest would have been shaking like a leaf to enter in on this one day into the presence of God. He had to be washed. He had to be clean. He had to be purified. He would enter with a blood sacrifice as the incense and the golden censer is with him. As the incense is moving up, he's entering in there. It has to be clean and all the sins uh, you know, uh, prayed up. Everything ready, the, the, the blood for the, uh, for the sacrifice. And above the mercy seat, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Sprinkle the blood. And it represented the atoning or the covering of his sins and the sins of the people. All of the children of Israel. Verse 8 says, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holy of, holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. What does that mean? This was a sign that the Holy Spirit um, had not yet given access to the throne room of God. Even the, the priest once a year was just God's kind of like little allowance to make it all work, if you will. Other than that, not a single human being was allowed behind the veil. Remember on the cross what happened to the veil? <laughs> It tears from top to bottom. But the writer's saying here, up until that point, there was no access for anyone at all into the Holy of Holies. It was not yet available. 
Now, verse 9 says it was symbolic for the present time, which, again, going back to the whole process and the Holy Holy itself, the blood, the once a year, all of it. It was symbolic for the present time, which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make. So he's saying at this time, by the way, the, the temple process and all that, uh, people are still much very adhering to this is, this is what we need. But he said, but those things can't really cleanse the conscience. Those kind of sacrifices. That's what he's getting at. They, 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 can't, they can't really cleanse us. They can't deliver us from guilt. Tells us that uh, if we're, it, verse 9 says, if we're still counting on the sacrifices, we still don't have the necessary access. If you're still counting on the sacrifices of bulls and goats and, and Yom Kippur, if you're still counting on that for to be, be cleansed and have access, you don't have access. So the unsaved world still has no access to the throne room of God. Does that make sense? If you're outside of salvation, you still don't have access. Say, well, I, I'm not outside of salvation. I'm a, I'm a reverent Jewish person, so I'm counting on my priest and my rabbi. And the, well, of course, they don't even have the sacrifice anymore. That, that's a, another problem today, right? We don't even have that. But at the time of Christ, they did. They still had the temple. But the writer's saying, even if you had all that, you still don't have access to the Holy of Holies. Verse 10, concerned only with the foods and drinks and various washing and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Uh, verse 10 tells us that all the ceremonial food limitations, all the washings, along with the gifts and sacrifices, would all need to give way to Reformation. They would all need to give way to a reform, a change, a significant different structure a restructuring that would need to be ushered in. Now, this wasn't new to God. It was always planned by God. Amen? It was always planned by God that he would create this to replace it with his son. Everything, but it would always, the stepping stones were there. The picture was there. The image was there. And who would usher it in? None other than Jesus. Look at verse 11 as we look at this last section. Verse 11, but Christ... A lot of times you'll have a conundrum in Scripture, and the next thing it'll say, but God, or but Christ, right? You have this conundrum like, so what do we do, right? that kind of thing, but Christ. Because he was saying in the previous verses, none of this could give you access, couldn't clean your conscience, you couldn't really enter into the holy holies, but Christ. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. With, a, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. This is not of this creation. Again, the divine versus earthly. He's talking about a different temple in the heavenly. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Not just a once-a-year deal, eternal. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, in other words, it does a temporary work, just like a shower. You get a temporary benefit, but you got to keep doing it, right? right. Everyone will thank you. Uh, how, much, <laughs> how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your way deep beyond your skin, conscience, way down at the soul level, way beneath what dial soap can do, your conscience, 
your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. There's so much richness in all this. You could spend weeks in just these terminologies. When you get to heaven and Jesus teaches us on these very passages, he could go for eternities. Let me tell you more about that verse. It'll be wonderful. These last uh, few things, and we'll come to a close. We see that in this, um, these last few verses, when Jesus, think about it, when he came to Bethlehem first, and then ultimately he comes to Jerusalem. So he comes down out of heaven to Bethlehem. But the whole reason he came to Bethlehem was to go to Jerusalem. It wasn't to stay in Bethlehem. All the way to Jerusalem to reascend to the tabernacle of heaven. He came down. He literally goes to the temple even as a child, right? He's taken there. But it, the whole coming was to go back to the tabernacle of heaven, not made by the Israelite artisans, not made by Solomon. Solomon built the first temple. Not made by the one that Zerubbabel built. And then the one that Herod the Great greatly expanded. I mean, by the time that Jesus was there, Herod the Great had made the temple. I really believe the fact that it's not among the seven ancient wonders of the world is, in my view, uh, it's either ignorance or anti-Semitism. I don't know which one it is, but, uh, or both. Because it was amazing what Herod had built. But think about it. The final, the final temple was beautiful and actually built out by a godless man in Herod. It was actually built by a godless man. No wonder God allowed it to be destroyed. Now, of course, there were other reasons that God had it be destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans came in. But it was all part of God's plan that the temple would go away and the risen Christ and the high priest of his church would remain and reside, and be perfect, and glorious, and not in any way connected to this fallen creation. Now again, separate study, another temple is still coming, a real physical temple that will be in Jerusalem, but that's for some fulfillment of things that Israel's not yet completed. Does that make sense? God can actually do all these things simultaneously, but the image of it all is still Jesus. Amen? He's even going to, uh, you know, so for, the, for this dispensation of the, eight, the church age, Jesus has replaced for this time everything else that we would look at him and him alone. In verse 11 it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle. No one saw Jesus bring a tabernacle. He said he was the tabernacle, right? He said, destroy this temple and what? Three days I'll raise it up. He said, I am the temple. No one could understand that. They actually were infuriated by that statement. What do you mean you're a temple? You're a guy from Galilee. You're a, you're a, you work with wood. We know who your father is. You're, you're not the temple. Of course, they didn't even understand what he was saying. But he's come, and he's not in any way connected to this fallen creation. Amen? Jesus is not connected to this fallen creation. He's perfect. And these good things, we've experienced many good things, haven't we, from Christ, probably the majority of which we're still unaware of. 
Just keep that in mind. Most of the good things you're experiencing, you're not even thinking about, like you're breathing right now. Uh, but uh, we cannot even comprehend the good things to come, much less what will come in eternity. But let's receive and meditate on this truth. If Jesus says you've already received a lot of good things, start telling yourself, I've already received a lot of good things. If he says you have, you have. He'll actually kind of put the enemy at bay and say, you can just quiet down because I've received a lot of good things from the Lord. Turn your attention back to verse 12 and 13, not with the blood of goats. Verse 13, not the, the, the blood of bulls and goats. The blood of animal sacrifices could neither permanently purify and cleanse a heart, nor could they provide any entryway into the presence of God. But the blood of Jesus can. The blood of Jesus actually takes you all the way in to the holy presence of God. Isn't that great? The blood of bulls and goats can't do it. You can offer as many as you want. And it was only the perfect, sinless, spotless blood of Jesus that opens that way. He offered not the uh, sacrifices of the Levitical priesthood. He wasn't even of the Levitical priesthood, as we talked about. But he offered his own blood. He was the sacrifice, his own flesh. And here we see the triune God. I don't know if you saw it, but actually the Trinity is visible right in verse 14. The blood of Christ, the eternal spirit, without spot to God. God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father, all mentioned in the same verse. What's, what, it, what it's saying here is the triune God was bringing forth the eternal, preordained work of salvation through the shed blood of Jesus. It was determined in the Godhead that it would always be the blood of Jesus. Always. That the tabernacle, the temple, all that would be stepping stones, all that would be foreshadows, all that would be symbolic, all that would be typology. But it would always be Jesus, and the Trinity was, was all saying together it was the blood of Jesus that will do this. The belief in and the acceptance of and the covering of Jesus' blood is the only sacrifice God will accept. This supernatural transaction that takes place, it cleanses our conscience from death and dead works. All of our works before salvation are dead works. They don't get you any merit with God. Nobody will get to God and say, well, you know, I was number one at the United Way campaign. You didn't realize that? I gave more than my coworkers. I also cut my neighbor's grass once. I did this. I did that. And God's like, yeah, I saw that, but I saw your thousands of sins too. And you rejected my son, which is the worst of all. The work of salvation allows us by Jesus to enter into the holy place and into heaven by prayer and communion that was symbolized by that torn veil and commenced by Jesus doing what? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. That He sat down to now intercede to be our priest. The relationship within the triune God becomes our relationship through Jesus. In other words, we become one with the Father. He goes, that they may be one even as we are one. Remember Jesus prayed that? That they may be one even as we are one. We are made one by the same oneness of the Trinity, because the agreement was, if the blood of Jesus is shed, anyone that accepts that, I will accept, and I will bring in. Our Savior and our High Priest, that's who he is to us. Notice we're not converted into this new relationship to become portraits hanging on the wall. It says, to the end of verse 14, to serve the living God, to serve from our, from our living and eternal hope. Remember, it says the eternal spirit in the middle of the verse there. 
from our eternal hope springs a living service to a living God. We have a living service to a living God. And even our service is not of us. It's not. We have to be willing, but it's his resurrection power in us. That makes sense? It's his resurrection power in us that gives us the power to serve. The law and determination will never be enough. You cannot do enough law or I'm, super, I'm a really determined person. That's not enough. It has to be surrender. Then comes the impartation of the salvation and the work of the Spirit. It's a yielding that God then places within us the strength to live and serve him, the living God. Andrew Murray said, a dead Christ I must do everything for, a living Christ does everything for me. A dead Christ I must do everything for, a living Christ does everything for me and through me. I was just thinking about the paradox as I was praying and walking this morning. Uh, Apart from me, you can do nothing. I can do all things through Christ. It's an all-or-nothing proposition here. That's what this text is telling us. It's an all-or-nothing. And we see in this closing work, he says, and for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, the redemption of the transgressions. We have a lot of transgressions that need to be uh, redeemed under the, under the first covenant. Those who are called, um, so it mentions here the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. Now, he's not talking about the new covenant here. He's saying in the first covenant, this is the, this is the law. And so we see here in this closing work, um, this title of mediator, which, by the way, is used only four times in the New Testament. Three of the four are here in Hebrews. Um, in verse 6 of chapter 8, it was informative, but here it's emphatic. It says, he is the mediator. Mm-hmm. Whereas at first it says, uh, who also, it's back in verse 6, it says, who is also mediator. Who is also mediator. Here it says, he is the mediator. Informative to emphatic the Holy Spirit driving home the point that we must have a mediator. And not just any mediator, but the one who can mediate between us and God. And what it's saying here, by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, all those under the first covenant couldn't be redeemed unless a mediator came. So they were looking to the coming Messiah, but God, when God says he'll do it, it's as good as done, but they still needed to have it done. That's why when Jesus was done on the cross, he said these words, it is finished. God says, he'll do it. It's as good as done. If Jesus puts his name on something, it's paid for, but yet it still has to be completed. So when Jesus said it's finished, the first covenant people in, in, in paradise are like, woohoo! That's what we were waiting for. When Jesus goes to the center of paradise and takes the saints up into the first, he's mentioning right here, those in the first covenant needed the redemption. They needed Jesus to complete the work. So, do we need Jesus as our high priest? Or do we need him as our sacrifice? Or do we need him as our redeemer? Or do we need him as our reformer, as our daily bread sprinkled with frankincense? Or do we need him found on the table of showbread as our daily bread? Or do we need him as the lifeless rod that becomes living and bears fruit or as the living bread in the ark? Or do we need the blood that's applied to the mercy seat as the um, glory is there? Or do we need the one who has torn the veil or the one who's created both the earth and the heavenly sanctuary? Or do we need the eternal spirit of God or the living God or the promise keeper? As it says here, the 
receive the promise, yes, a thousand times yes. Amen? Amen. A thousand times. We need all of that through the mediator of our salvation, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for taking us deeper in our understanding. In a way we don't understand right now, you instructed the writer of Hebrews to write things, these things down, that at some level, it'll make us more thirsty for the things of the Spirit. It'll make us more desiring to enter in daily to the Holy of Holies. It'll make us, Lord, by your presence and by your Spirit, desire a more pure life. That our prayer life will be a sweet incense that goes up. And Lord, we pray that uh, we would indeed be drawn into a deeper presence with you. We ask, Lord, even as we're about to take of the uh, Lord's Supper elements, Lord, that you just prepare our hearts. What a perfect passage to take us into the Holy of Holies and to remember your body and your blood that was shed for us.